Hello and welcome to Dress Fancy. I'm Lucy Clayton and I'm here with cultural historian Dr Benjamin Wilde to talk about a subject which we lovingly refer to as super niche, but which we hope you will enjoy too. There's lots of writing and research about the cultural importance of costume in film and theatre and ballet and performance generally, but what we want to explore in this series is the private history of costume, of fancy dress. The people, the parties, the protests, where clothes shape the story. Now, dressing up might seem like an inherently frivolous subject, and in a world where there is so much to worry about, it might feel like a spectacular irrelevance. But in this series, we'll be examining the social significance and psychology of dressing up, and why it remains a constant theme throughout history. This is our second episode, and you can follow the slideshow of visual references on our Instagram, at Podcast. And this is one where you will really want to see these outfits, because today we're talking about one of the most legendary parties ever. An example of a lavish, no-expense-spared ball, the kind of which we no longer really see. And the remarkable thing is that a surprising number of costumes still exist and can be seen in museums today. We'll direct you to those as we reference them. And of course, we are talking about the Devonshire Ball, one of the most legendary and spectacular costume balls that was held on the 2nd of July, 1897, to celebrate, to commemorate the Diamond Jubilee of Queen Victoria. Now, Ben, this ball was a big production number, wasn't it? So set the scene for us. When, where, why and who? Okay, so you're absolutely right. This was, as I said, one of the most lavish balls of the period. And really, if we're thinking about the extravagant fancy dress balls, one of the largest ever. It was held here in London, central London, in Piccadilly, which indeed is very close to where we are. Devonshire House no longer exists, but you can get a sense and and a glimmer of this magnificent estate if you are patrolling, if you're strolling through Green Park. The great gates of Devonshire House still are there. Mm -hmm. The actual site now is, of course, a sort of office block or something rather dull and and drab. (laughs) The ball was hosted by the Duke and the indomitable Duchess of Devonshire. This was Louisa. She was known as the Double Duchess. She was previously the Duchess of Manchester and this time, the Duchess of Devonshire, 65 years old. So she's seen it all and I think knows how to host one of these extravagant parties. And in this period, lots were held. The ball itself, the Devonshire ball held in July of 1895, but just a few months before, Mm -hmm. in February, the Countess of Warwick had held another one. So there's almost, I think, a sense of rivalry between the leagues. Absolutely that. This, though, was the showstopper, largely because of the number of guests. We have about sort of 700 people in attendance. Queen Victoria, whether she was not amused or not, I don't know, but she wasn't in attendance. But her son, the Prince of Wales, later, of course, Edward VII, was there with his wife, um, Alexandra, and the Duke of York as well. So you've got royalty, you've got really the great and the good of largely British, and I suppose by that I mean English society, a lot Mm -hmm. of American entrepreneurs and socialites were quite miffed that they didn't receive their sort of invitation in the post. So, as you said, a very extravagant ball indeed. And I love a theme, and Mm. and anyone who's had an invitation drop through the post with a dress code in it either finds that horrifying or, (laughs) or in my case, very exciting. But there was real complexity to this theme, wasn't Mm. there? You know, it was very much a costume ball. Tell us about how that was described and, and, Mm. and indeed, what guest response was to that theme. Okay, so if you were lucky enough to have received an invitation to this ball, it would have stipulated that the dress that you were expected to wear was allegorical or historical before 
before 1815. I mean, this might seem quite sort of esoteric and quite sort of fantastical, Mm. but this would have been very much the fashion of the time. And it would have then really been up to guests to sort of organise themselves into what were often known as um, quartets. So different themed costume groups. As I suppose a little bit of a helping hand to guide the people, it was suggested that there should be an English court and that this would follow the fashions of Good Queen Bess, Elizabeth I, Mm -hmm. a Austrian court of Empress Maria Theresa, the French courts of Louis XV and Louis XVI. These were always really, really popular during this time despite, I suppose, historically, the controversial nature of these regimes. Right. Um, the Russian court of Catherine the Great, and it was concluded with a Athorian court. So reliving the sort of myths and legends of Camelot and yep. Guinevere and all of that. I just have this vision of people going, yep, yeah, yeah, Russian court, Russian court. No, absolutely. <laughs> and, I, and I think it would have been an element of that, people trying to sort of bagsy the, right. the, the best costumes. Because... You are spending, as we'll we'll hear in a moment, you're spending enormous sums of money. It's quite a commitment, isn't it? You don't want to sort of, a few months down the line, regret your choice of court. But what I think you also (laughs) don't want to do is dress as a subject that someone else arrives at. Of course. Horror. At the ball, for example, there ended up being three queens of Sheba. And it's kind of like... (laughs) You know, not necessarily you you would think a, a particularly obvious subject, but you know the time, the money you've invested, all of a sudden someone else is dressed as the same. It's like, oh wow. Do we know if there was one definite winner in the three sheepers? You do get comparisons, and it was Princess Daisy of Pless who I think wins the wins the sort of crown it. or tiara. And there's this beautiful description of what she wore. And a lot of this, I should say, these descriptions come from journalists at the time. If I just read this out from one of the newspapers that recorded this fantastic event. So this is the Queen of Sheba, one of three, Princess Daisy of Pless. No one could describe at all adequately the barbaric splendour of it, with turquoise, emerald, amethyst and ruby, caught in a web of finest gold and spread thickly upon the dress and train of diaphanous gauze in purple and gold, its shifting light seeming to mingle with that of the jewels. I almost feel a bit like sort of Nigella Lawson describing one of her sort of <laughs> unctuous recipes reading this. Black attendants bore her train along, and among her girl attendants was her pretty sister, Mrs Cornwallis West in an Ethiopian dress of snowy crepe, gilded with jewels under a flowing robe of gold tissue. Yikes. That's pretty impressive. It really is. And you can imagine, as you said, the time that's spent, obviously not time spent by um, Princess Daisy of Pless. She's commissioned someone to make this. But also the message that you're sending out, coming back exactly to your point about competition, friendly or, or otherwise. Or otherwise. And is this one of the costumes that survives? Because it's unusual, isn't it, the number of costumes that still have managed to kind of stand the test of time and then yeah. can be seen. But is this one of them? This, alas, is not one of them. Oh. But, but you're right. There are, as far as I'm aware, eight costumes that survive from the Devonshire Ball. The majority of them are in the UK, many of them actually in the collection of the Victoria and Albert Museum. A couple of them are in the National Museum of Oslo. And I think it is testimony to the almost legendary status of this ball Even in 1897, people knew that this was quite special and they want to preserve their garments. But as you've also indicated, it is an enormous outlay that you have spent essentially for a couple of hours entertainment. Right. And I think you want to preserve that. You of want, course, uh, uh, which uh, is why there are also photographs exactly, that, and, and yeah. lots of them, which we will show you, of course, on, on our Instagram page. So 
Let's talk about a few of the costumes in detail, the Mm. ones that really deserve to be explored. What were some of the absolute kind of favourites across the evening, do you think? I think one of mine, because on the face of it, quite simple, but at the same time also really quite extraordinary, was a costume worn by the Countess of Westmoreland, Sybil. And this was a costume of the goddess Hebe based on a portrait by... Joshua Reynolds. And when you look at it, and we have this wonderful image here taken by Lafayette. So people would would pose for these costumes up to a minute in their garments as the photographer did his work. You have this very long flowing gown and train attached to it in most likely sort of white silk or something like that. But it's not really the dress that you're focusing on. What you're actually (laughs) looking at is this whacking great full-sized eagle that is attached to her shoulder. And this, of course, was one of the symbols, one of the identifying characteristics of the goddess Hebe, the goddess of youth, along with, as you see here, her gold cup. This is from which she would feed ambrosia to the gods. And although this is black and white... These rich descriptions, not dissimilar to that of Daisy of Place that we've just heard from, described how Sybil's sort of red curled hair contrasted so strikingly with the grey feathers of the eagle. That is a full taxidermied eagle on her shoulder. Oh, it really is. She she was going for broke on this. That's heavy. And I don't know how you dance with an eagle on your shoulder. We have to sit down half the time. Yeah. and It's not not simply the eagle, which is hefty enough, but it's also (laughs) the way that the eagle is positioned. It's awkward. And you can see on the picture, can't you? I mean, it's positioned for impact over practicality, I think it's fair to say. I I think you're right. uh, Which is one of my favourite things about fancy dress. (laughs) (laughs) There must have been some form of harness... And so I would imagine that once she was wired in, you know, before the carriage journey, I mean, getting out of in and out of a carriage yeah. in this would just be The height hideous. of it is extreme, isn't yeah. it? So you're, you're in for the duration, frankly. <laughs> and, and she was known to contemporaries as being quite daring. She was a great beauty, 26 years old at the time of the Devonshire Ball. And in some ways, I think, although she looks in the sort of prime of her youth and, and, and very mischievous in some ways, trying to get notice, there's actually quite a sad story in that despite being here, the goddess of youth, she dies in 1910 at the age of 39. So, you know, you get a sort of sense here, the sort of snapshot of this wonderful character, I suppose in some ways at the sort of um, height of her life. But yeah, that sort of quite sad story that I think emerges at the same time through that. And that, the simplicity of the dress in comparison to the sort of show-stopping elements around it, that was a theme throughout the evening, wasn't it? Quite a few people went for the sort of skimpy end of the spectrum, which of course at the time versus, you know, fashion at the time would have been Mm. quite risque. Absolutely. And and I think that was, again, one of the great advantages that a costume ball afforded you a certain licence. I mean, one of the men who attended the balls actually made the point that it was so enjoyable because he was freed from all of the sartorial strictures of the day. You could dress however you wanted, in skimpy garments or dressed to the nines with eagles or other animals, flora and fauna, you know, whatever you want, really. Absolutely. And there is great freedom and creative Mm. freedom, of course, in that. So let's talk about some of the other costumes. Charles Spencer Churchill. Yeah. Demonstrating, I think, that men had fun at this as well. I mean, some of the men tended to go to or flock towards the Arthurian court simply because that meant you're in armour. And that might have been difficult to wear, but one gets the sense that that limits your sartorial choices. It's got to be armour. So, <laughs> so that's the easy option. That, that's, I think, the easy option. They think maybe have paid for it during the course of the evening, but then they should have had a little bit more enthusiasm, frankly. Right. And maybe thought a little bit more like here, as you said, 
the Duke of Marlborough. Here he is in this sort of Lafayette photograph. Lafayette, a company that had a little sort of tent where you would come and be immortalised in your costumes. And with him, I think good reason, because he had almost certainly one of the most expensive costumes of the evening, a costume that was made by the couturier Worth, an English couturier but based in Paris. And Worth was known, a kind of consummate businessman, known to increase the price of fabric that was used and increase the price of the time that it was taken to make garments. So there was enormous status if you were having a Worth set of garments as Charles is wearing here. So what's he wearing? If we look at that in detail, he's dressed as a French ambassador at the court of Catherine of Russia and wearing a frock coat, breeches and waistcoat. I mean, it really is spectacular, isn't it? The detail. It really and the, is, the, yeah. It's exquisite, the amount of work on that. And we can hear from a diary entry in Worth's biography a little bit about the making process and indeed what it cost. We acceded to his demand after a few scandalised protestations and got to work on a Louis Quinze costume of straw-coloured velvet embroidered in silver, pearls and diamonds. The waistcoat was made of a magnificent white and gold damask that was an exact copy of a very rare old pattern. Each pearl and diamond was sewn on by hand, and it took several girls almost a month to complete this embroidery of jewels. Had the Duke not insisted that his costume be perfection, we should never have dared put such costly work into it. In spite of his orders about elegance, when I came to make out his bill, I was almost too afraid to begin it. But at last, when I got it totaled, it came to 5,000 francs. So that is a extraordinary sum of money. If we just put that into a contemporary context, what essentially we're talking about is an outlay that would have cost maybe about £13,000 in the 19th century. Today, any guesses? <laughs> I mean, I'm, this is not my area. Are I'm you... going to say it's a bargain. Well, you might think so. I mean, he looks he looks quite the, quite the thing. So, so to be sort of arrogant and with disdain at, at all the other people there in the photograph. We're talking about just under a million, so about £700,000 wow. for this garment. And in some ways, what makes it even more tragic is it's not known to survive. So possibly something like this, and indeed this is often the fate of fancy dress. It's maybe recycled for theatre productions yeah. or something like that. So it may well survive or it's been sort of cut up and, and parts of the embroidery have been Fragments used Fragments might it, remain. Exactly but, so, yeah. I mean, that is a startling sum of money. That is a it, long way off an animal onesie from it, Amazon. It really it? is. And even more so for this guy because he is... We're in 1897 for the Devonshire Ball. He's only inherited his, his dupe that dumb in 1892. And of course, when he did, he was bankrupt. So how, as an English duke, do you gain solvency? Answer, you marry a American heiress. Of course. One of the Vanderbilts. So he marries Consuela Vanderbilt, um, heiress to a sort of railroad um, fortune. And clearly he's quite sort of profligate and penurious in that, you know, as soon as he's got this sort of wad of cash and secure financial 
position, he's then spending it. And his, his wife is <laughs> On there. On embroidery. <laughs> exactly. Why not? What else did you do with it? And his wife, I should say, is there too. Consuela's there as the wife of the French ambassador. So she's there for, despite sort of essentially the cash in this yeah. marriage, she's just there as a bit part for him. For him. And you probably won't be surprised to learn that the marriage doesn't last particularly long and they divorce soon after. But at this time, again, he's 26 years old, so he's incredibly young and very much a sort of rising star. He enters the House of Lords in 1892 and is sworn in on the Privy Council 1899. So, as I said, he looks rather sort of smug and sure of himself in this photograph. And the Worth garment does that, exalts his position, but also he knows that he's set. He's secure. Absolutely. After a rocky, rocky few months. After a rocky few months, absolutely. <laughs> now, clearly, budget wasn't a limitation for for any of the guests, mm. I suppose. But it seems like there is this sense of things being deliberately commissioned and designed to show off and to show off wealth. Let's talk a bit about the jewellery. Yeah, this obviously is the diamond jubilee of Queen Victoria. And some guests, quite understandably took this as a theme. If they're going to dress as someone from the Elizabethan period or Arthurian, let's just sort of embroider, let's sort of slap on some diamonds to our garments. And one lady, um, only described in the newspapers as a certain woman, um, clearly they weren't interested (laughs) in her. Well, they they were interested in what she was wearing. She bedazzled too much. I think this is the point. She was too successful, a victim of her success. So we're told in a newspaper account that she had hired... Brace yourself for this. It's quite extraordinary. (laughs) £13,000 worth of diamonds at a cost of £100 for the night. And this was an addition, we're told, to her private supply. Now, the sort of numerical wizard that I'm I'm not, but I, I nonetheless did some calculations on this. Essentially, what she's doing, this certain woman, is hiring £7.7 million worth of diamonds, which she's hiring for £6,000. Right. So I think this really is a bargain. If you're hiring for six hours... For one night only. Okay, one night only. But (laughs) you're wearing, or the appearance is that you're wearing £7.7 million worth. And that was important on this night. It was. And it's interesting, I think, the way that certain contemporary newspapers pick this up, because the journalist went on to talk about Golconda's mines. And of course... Golconda is a diamond mine or a series of diamond mines in South India. And of course, it was from here in 1849 that Queen Victoria received the Coronor diamond. And the journalist says that such was the bedazzling display at the Devonshire Ball that Golconda's mines were as a dismal swamp at midnight. So, so many people are wearing these diamonds that Golconda is bare, um, which is just extraordinary. But I think what's also interesting, and not so much at the Devonshire Ball, but a lot of other contemporary balls, people wore essentially costume jewellery, so fake jewellery, because, of course, worn at a distance and mixed in with your sort of private stash, you can create a much larger visual impact. People can think you've got perhaps more than you have. Clearly, this lady who's hiring wants to create the impression that she has a greater status or greater economic reserves than than she really did. Of course. I suppose the rules are different, aren't they, on a Mm. night like that? So if half of them are paced, no one's going to be examining (laughs) them too closely. And of course, you've got royalty there. So I think you want to very much dress the part because of who you're 
mingling with and possibly associations that might come from that in terms of extending your social circle. That was often what this is about. Of course. Um, demonstrating the connections you've got in high society and moving with the right set. So even if your diamonds aren't real, it's important that your eagle is. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just quickly reference some of the other pictures that we will be showing. So we've got the Duchess of Portland, Duchess of Savoy here. Yeah, so the Duchess of Portland is here wearing a gown not made by Worth. We don't actually know the maker of this. There's no label in the costume. But dressed as the Duchess of Savoy from the 16th century, this is a costume that is in the V&A. And I was really actually quite lucky. A number of these costumes had been on display at the Chatsworth House exhibition quite recently. Yeah. And they had all just returned to the V&A and were still mounted on their mannequins. So I was able to sort of see a group of all of these different gowns together, which, to be honest, very few people will have done of since course. the 1897 wow. ball. And this gown, worn by the Duchess of Portland, I think is particularly arresting, not least because you have this enormous sort of pointed lace collar but also, as you can see, just some of the detail. And we can see that it is machine stitched. We can see that it is one complete garment. If this had been strictly following contemporary fashions, the bodice and skirt would have been separate. We can see actually here they're all one garment, just simply for relative ease of use. But embroidered satin, we've got pearls, we've got brilliant cut diamonds, and that again was important. The brilliant cut of diamond is the cut that provides the greatest amount of shine and reflection. So again, your sparkle is reaching even further, in a sense, in this room, mm -hmm. um, which is perhaps dimly lit. So you want to sort of play on that as much as possible. But also this sort of metallic silver thread that is used to create these wonderful floriate patterns on the skirt. I mean, it's almost bridal, isn't it? And it's, it really is. It's no, absolutely. Yeah. Sort of glowing off the page. And what's lovely, I think, is to be able to see the photograph of her in it and then the detail. And I think what this shows, these very sort of Lafayette photographs, is how people really got into character. I mean, the way that she's sort of posing her left hand clutching the sort of drape of a yes. curtain. She's, yeah. you know, I think people really are enjoying, they really are entering into the moment of this. And with good reason. This is something that is absolutely extraordinary. This is not you know, your everyday occurrence, even if you are someone who can afford to shell out in a relatively short period of time the money for these garments. And let's talk about the pictures here of Duchess of Devonshire herself. Mm. The Duchess of Devonshire attended as Zenobia, Queen of Palmyra. And that is in some ways, quite an interesting choice to have attended as because the Queen of Palmyra was often depicted in portraits in a lot of sort of contemporary art and was quite a feisty character. This is somebody who fought with the Romans and, and, and conquered Egypt, but she was apparently also, as much as sort of legend or, or history has it, quite a tolerant ruler and, and allowed her subjects sort of free religious worship. So again, I think quite a powerful figure that the Duchess of Devonshire is here channeling. And again, I think with good reason. You know, as I've said, she's 65 years old. She has sort of seen it all. I think she wants something that is befitting her status. And that's, I think, very much the impression that I get looking at the Lafayette photograph. You've got this sort of balustrading, stone balustrading behind her. She's looking sort of wistfully into the distance and wearing this extraordinary gown of green, white and 
gold. And again, we do have a contemporary description of that, this from the Boston Evening Transcript. And he describes it as follows, all in green and white and gold, with huge diamonds hanging from the horns of a gold helmet, studded with jewels, and with quantities of her beautiful pearls hanging in chains all about her head and shoulders. And again, she has access to these diamonds, not least because of the Devonshire collection, but also the Manchester collection that she, in a sense, had access to from being this double duchess. And that pose there in that photograph is actually all about sort of power, isn't it? Really it? Is. It's not. It's a demonstration of power, that dress, mm. as opposed to the Countess of Westmoreland, which is about youth and frivolous. I think that's true. She and feels carefree in that photograph. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And, and I think that sense of power and authority is brought home by this wonderful, and remarkable in terms of preservation, this really bright, rich, green mm. train, completely impractical in the context of the space of a fancy dress ball where you've got lots of people hustling, sort of bustling closely together. But nonetheless, this train gives her a sense of space. You don't want to necessarily get too close to her so you can kind of drink in the splendour of it. I mean, you've got these um, sort of scalloped, clearly sort of Eastern-influenced designs. You've got sort of floriat or, or possibly sort of suns on the skirt. The train of the hem, you're picking up bright oranges and reds and blues, these really sort of rich colours, all picked out in gold thread and other sort of metallic embroidery. So really quite striking when the light hits this. And this dress is still available to see, isn't it, at Chatsworth? It really is, yeah, absolutely. So worth a visit. Now, how was this all received at the time? Obviously, we've talked a little bit about press coverage and a lot mm. of the descriptions of it survived through that. How was this sort of outrageous opulence received by everyone and by people who weren't invited? I think that's a really interesting question because it, there was almost a kind of sort of love to hate. At the one hand, people clearly liked sort of seeing these carriages appear before Devonshire House and flock, you know, and, and clamour at the railings. You do, really do get a sense of excitement. And I think that comes through in the descriptions that, we, that we've heard from, from contemporaries. But at the same time, there was also an enormous sense of disdain. Why is it these people, these this rarefied sort of coterie of people, why are they spending such extraordinarily large sums of money on garments that are worn for a maximum of a few hours for one evening? And that was, in some ways, often a major criticism of not just this ball, but fancy dress balls more generally. In the same month, actually, as the Devonshire Ball, we have the Bradley Martin Ball, which was held in America. And again, the people who were invited to that brought their gowns from sort of Worth, etc. But such was the sort of scandal at the cost that the Bradley Martins actually had to leave New York and come to um, England to let the uh, essentially the tensions die down. So people were impressed by the Devonshire Ball, but at the same time were quite critical. I've quoted before from the Boston Evening Transcript, and I think this sort of final sort of um, quotation is he's sort of drawing the threads of his story together contain that sense of disdain. So he says, the gowns were too heavy, the evening too warm, and the great rooms too crowded for much dancing. To be sure, the function was called a ball, but it was rather a great luxury exhibition. It's interesting that he uses the word ex mm. exhibition, this idea of spectacle. So a great luxury exhibition of the culminating barbaric sort 
possible in a diamond jubilee season. I mean, that is pretty scathing, isn't it? It is. This idea that you can just about get away with it because it's a diamond jubilee. It's ostensibly in honour of the Queen, the Emperor, so we'll let you get away with it. But actually, we know your game. But actually, it's distasteful. It is. I think so. There's a sense almost of it being quite vulgar. And I think that idea of vulgarity and fancy dress is something that we actually are quite drawn to. There's something very enjoyable about it at the same time as it being perhaps a little bit uncomfortable. I think that's one of the things that I find interesting Mm. about it as a concept. And that seems to have a sort of timeless fascination for us. If we look recently at the Met Gala in New York and the press surrounding the most recent heavenly bodies with the Catholic theme, there was an awful lot of outrage and negative press around some outfits in particular Mm. that felt a little bit close to the bone and overt display of religion in a party context felt, I think, for a lot of people, borderline. I I think you're right. I think that the Met Ball is a interesting example because it's probably the closest we've got today to anything that would rival the Devonshire Ball of the 19th century. And I think you're right. I mean, there are two for me, two costumes that really sort of stood out in terms of attracting sort of the opprobrium of the press. Again, a sort of love-hate relationship. They really wanted to feature them and said that this was sort of representative of all that the sort of Met Gala represents. But at the same time, we don't really like them. And that, of course, was Rihanna in her Martin Magella gown, dressed as a sort of pseudo-pope, which I think, as you said, did cut quite close to the bone for a lot of people, and I think with understandable reason. The other was the sort of gold number worn by Sarah Jessica Parker, a confection of Dolce & Gabbana, and quite extraordinarily wearing a nativity on her head. So sort of channeling that sort of hebe eagle. If the you know, <laughs> eagle's not available, or we don't know a taxidermist on, on fast call. Let's, yeah, let, let's, let's trump it all. Let's go, let's go Jesus. Of course, it's quite seasonally inaccurate for a ball in May to have a nativity scene on your head. Yeah, but you've got, in, in in terms of what she's wearing, I mean, she's clearly beaming in, in photographs and looking very pleased with herself, but a lot of quite odd cultural symbols and references all thrown into the mix here. And again, I think that did make it visually quite spectacular, but at the same time, it means that you kind of get the sense that it's being worn to make a statement, it's being worn to project or, or to give some sense of a protection of self, rather than actually being worn for any noble reason at all. It does come back to something that's just a little bit vulgar. How much money have you got? How much status have you got? And that's interesting because that's what we're going to be exploring in our next episode, where we'll be talking about bad taste. So if you want to see any of the examples we've talked about today and more beyond that, the ones we haven't had time to mention, follow our Instagram page at Dress Fancy Podcast, where each episode has a dedicated post with all the pictures in one place so it's not too painful to follow along. So yes, join us next time to discover what happens when it all goes wrong. And we'll be exploring a little bit more about this idea of in bad taste. Where are the boundaries for fancy dress or do they exist at all? Do find us on iTunes and subscribe and any comments or continuations of this conversation can be had on Instagram. Thank you to Ben Fleetwood Smythe for being the voice of worth, to Mark our editor and thank you for listening.